Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, in this uh, moment, what we need is much more than a Christmas lesson. Uh, what we need uh, much more uh, than just a little shot in the arm for our self-salvation quests. We need much more than that. Lord, I pray uh, that your Holy Spirit, through your word, would meet us and Lord would uh, convince us of our deep, deep, deep need for you and would also convince us of your deep, deep willingness to meet our need. Uh, Lord, do this uh, even now. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, so uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were in Micah 5 and talked about the hope of Advent. Uh, last week, we talked about the love of Advent. Tonight, we're talking about the joy of Advent. And next week, we'll finish our little four-week Advent series uh, with the peace uh, of Advent. And each of these themes are uh, played out historically as we, uh, in the historical Christian calendar, uh, these four weeks uh, during Advent. And uh, when I was thinking about joy, I was thinking about kind of my own relationship with Christmas. It's been um, a little touch and go. Uh, as a kid, I loved it. Uh, in, my, in my home, we listened to a lot of Amy Grant and Nat King Cole uh, on cassette tapes. Uh, we went, uh, we went, we lived in North Kentucky, and there was a, you, you know, house with with larger homes and lots of lights, and this place called Bella Hills, and uh, we would always go to the Christmas lights in Bella Hills, listen to Nat King Cole and Amy Grant, uh, and then Santa always nailed it on Christmas morning. Uh, so I kid, I love Christmas. Uh, the high school and college came, and you know, the kind of uh, adolescent uh, glaze fell over my brother and I. The scene on the Christmas tree wasn't quite so eventful and joyous. Uh, we were much more apt to sleep in, and um, and we were making excuses of why we needed to get out of the house uh, to go see our friends. Uh, and so it, it, we're on a kind of downward decline here. Uh, and then marriage came, and we hit an all-time low those early years. Uh, we lived out of town, and um, Jen and I, we, we grew up half a mile apart from one another. And you might say, well, if you're out of town and you grew up half a mile apart, that must be wondrous. It was terrible. Uh, because what happens is all your family puts all this pressure that you got split these few days a year that you have with them. And so no one really enjoys it. It's just one big argument. It was like we were, uh, we were the rope in the tug of war. Uh, we weren't a participant. Uh, we, were the, we, were, we were the rope. It was awful. Uh, our worst fights were driving from uh, Florence, Kentucky to Birmingham, Alabama, and about December the 28th every year. Uh, then children came. We're on, we're on the upswing. And uh, you, you can feel the expectation building in our home. We've got Elf on the Shelf that we've named Elfie uh, that comes every morning uh, to tell us about Christmas. We've got um, maybe these Advent readings uh, that were about, you know, <laughs> we missed more than we would. Um, <laughs> And then, there, then there's these Christmas, the Christmas concert at the school. There's winter song. There's Christmas parties. And there's our worship services are built around the scene of Christmas. Um, it's like uh, this anticipation balloon inflates a bit, a bit more each day until it finally bursts on Christmas morning. And what will that be like? I, I think it'll be joyous. Um, it won't be just be joyous because of the glee on my children's faces. It's because we've been preparing ourselves uh, for the advent of joy. And I think what joy is, in its simplest definition, that, that joy is hope fulfilled. And we see this hope fulfilled with, uh, it, it, when we see a child who's born, the parents have been filled with anticipation for what this baby will look like. Will the baby be a boy or a girl, if you can hold out that long? Uh, 
What will the baby's temperament be like? And then in an instant, you become a parent. But that's after a period of trying to get pregnant, getting pregnant, waiting for nine months. And so when a parent sees their baby for the first time, it's hopefully filled and brings them joy. But perhaps it's an engagement. The couple's been waiting for a long time, and the joy is theirs when their hopes are fulfilled at the altar. Might be graduating hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months and even years of work are fulfilled as the hope of graduation has come. And we've been talking about this hope. We did it in Micah 5, and we saw the, 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 love, of, the love of God for us is up in Micah 3, and this week we're going to look at the advent of joy in Isaiah 12. Uh, when, we, when you read this uh, song, or this, when you read this passage, you will, it gets the feeling that it's a song. Uh, Isaiah kind of breaks in, uh, into a song and can't help but sing as he thinks about the king who will be born. So let's read this passage together. If you found it in bulletin, page 7. Um, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The word of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Uh, there's a certainty. Uh, they're in that very first line. It, it, when it says, you will say in that day, uh, what Isaiah is talking to, uh, the people he's talking to, the, the, the present's very bleak. Uh, it's, they're very close to being, uh, what, what, we, what we saw uh, a couple weeks ago in Micah, they're very close to being under siege. Uh, they're, being, they're very close to being taken into captivity. And so his ministry is, is one that's depleted of hope in their present circumstance, but he's got to point them uh, to, to, to the future. He's got to point them to a better day when joy will dawn. And the basis of this joy will, will, doesn't have anything to do with Assyria, their enemy. It doesn't have anything to do with their, their enemy, Babylon, being, being crushed. What it has to do with is, is this, this renewal in their relationship with their God. God's people will sing, and they're going to give thanks because God's disposition towards them has changed from that of anger to that of comfort. God was once angry, and now his anger has melted into thin air so that he could comfort his people. And if you're like me, when I read this first verse, um, it brought up a lot of questions for me. Uh, the first one was, for, if, because it was, if God is a God of love, then how can God be so angry? It sounds like God's bipolar, doesn't it? He's, he, he's angry there in the first part of verse 1, and he comforts in the second part of verse 1. And to think of God as, uh, for any of us, as a modern, judge, as judging sin, it's a, tough, it's a real tough concept. But I can understand in large measure, because for a lot of us, we've had powerful people over us who have not been all that loving, that they really have been angry. And a lot of us, we bear scars of the anger that we have received. Might have been parents, might have been a supervisor, might have been a coach, might have been a teacher, 
Might have been an older, another older family member. Could have been a religious leader. They got anger on you, left a mark. And left a mark on your soul. So when you see in verse 1 that God's angry, it's real hard to, 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 to conceive of. And usually what we do, if, you, if you've been a part of the church, you've been around the Bible a long time, is that we just, we, we just kind of brush God's anger to the side and we really focus on that he's only love. But let me ask you this question. What if God's anger doesn't look like the anger of men? What if it doesn't look like your anger? What if God's anger doesn't look like the anger that you have absorbed, that you have marks from? See, usually our anger, it's capricious. It's arbitrary. Uh, it, it can be bad-tempered. It can be conceited. But see, God's anger isn't like this. His anger is not malicious. It, it doesn't look like a child who doesn't want to share his or her, her toys. What God's anger is like, it, it, God's anger is a function of his holy disgust and his loathing that he has with anything or anyone that is in contradiction to his holiness. Anything that's in contradiction to his holiness, he has a disgust for so when he's angry, his angry reaction is always righteous and just. Always. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, this summer, uh, Brooks, our five and a half month old, was two weeks old. This was Jenna's first time away from him. And um, she left him home with me, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't go one on three just yet. So my mother-in-law helped. And uh, my mother-in-law were in the living room, which is right next to the dining room, and we're holding Brooks at the time. You just had to hold him rocking until he, until he wouldn't cry anymore. He was having a rough spell right there. And, um, as we're doing this, we're finally getting quiet, and, uh, and, and in panic, my mother-in-law looks into the dining room. She goes, it's a bat, a B-A-T. There's a bat flying in my dining room. <laughs> uh, I'd never had a bat in the house before. And, uh, kind of instinctively, I grabbed the broom. I ran the back house, I grabbed the broom, I hit it, it fell down on the ground. Uh, I put the broom on top of the back, so there's a broom back floor, and uh, the back ended up dying. And, uh, <laughs> and so what, what happened, what I, what I came to find out, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't Google when I saw the back, what, what are bats harmful to, your, to people? Uh, I just knew they were. I knew they were, they carried rabies, and so I have this baby that I'm holding, and I handed the baby to my mother-in-law, and I got after the bat. Now, I don't have anything against bats. I don't have some phobia against bats, like I do other animals. Uh, <laughs> but bats do pose a threat to the people in my house. It was aimed. This wasn't, this, I didn't have a bad day that day. It was aimed at this bat. Now, I don't know, this, this isn't a perfect illustration. Uh, <laughs> But when we think of God, it really matters what you think of God. And it really, really matters what you think his anger is like. And oftentimes we take our pictures of what we think anger is like in us, and we usually make them negative. We think of what, what we have seen in other people when we've seen angry people, and we project that onto God. But what if God's anger is always aimed and is always just? So when we come against God's character, when we are in contradiction to his holiness, he has every right to be angry. 
the first tough question. How can a God who loves us be so angry? But what might be an even trickier question is how God can move from being angry, even righteously angry, at his people, then he moves to comforting them. What happened between that anger and that comfort? Has, has God, is he just brushing their sin under the rug? Is he just simply letting bygones be bygones? Maybe God took some melatonin to take his angry edge off. But God did not brush your sin under the rug. He did not brush my sin under the rug. He didn't let bygones be bygones. Because if he did that, then it would be right to charge God with being unjust. But this is not what God has done. Because what God has done, instead of finding you guilty and then punishing you, he has found his sin to be, his son to be guilty and then punished him instead. The kicker is that God's son was not guilty of anything. He always did what pleased his father. And in the mystery of the gospel is that God has counted his innocent son to be guilty so that his guilty people could be counted innocent. So Christ, the holy son of God, in his, in his sinless human flesh, has endured the condemnation that a lost person deserves, so that we, as lost people, can trust in him and live with him for eternity. See, Jesus was, this is a big word, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the, the, the wrath quencher. God was angry at us, instead of us absorbing his wrath like a sponge, Jesus absorbed God's wrath on our behalf when he was sinless. There was no other alternative for God to pay the price to love you without killing you. So he loved you and killed his son. That's how he has moved from being angry to comforting you. So friends, God has set aside the record of death that stood against us and he's nailed it to the cross. And what this leads to is joy. You can see the joy just comes out in verse 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength. And my song has become my salvation. This comfort has led to sin. This comfort has led to joy. See, friends, there's nothing to fear. Your sins are forgiven. And now... If you're in Christ, it's impossible for God to be angry at you. It is a guarantee that your sin will not, be, not lead to condemnation. So this means that joy is yours. The advent of joy came to Bethlehem, and it came to Bethlehem in a person, and he's become our salvation. So this is the very heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus did not come to show you how to be a joyful person. Because Jesus isn't primarily a teacher. Jesus is primarily the king, and he's come to die for his rebellious subjects so that you might have joy upon joy in him. This is the good news, friends. This is the joy that is ours in this Advent season. But in verse 2, it kind of comes to the question, well, how do we experience this joy? Well, verse 3, he starts getting, he starts getting to it. So you see there in verse 3, you see the second person pronoun, uh, the second person pronoun, you. You here is to refer to God, it refers to God's people. Isaiah is talking to 
to, to God's people. And he says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. But what does this drawing look like? What is a well? Well, friends, in order for you and I to be comforted and to have joy for the long haul, we're going to need to return to this well of salvation. We're on a journey, and if you're on a journey and you've got one well, uh, you're in bad shape. But if you're on a journey and you've got well after well after well after well, you're going to have your thirst quenched. So we're going to need reminders of this greatness of our salvation, and we're going to do it by coming to the wells. But what are the wells? Well, wells are the means of grace. Most of us, we think that, that, that we experience uh, God through being through some aesthetic, uh, overly spiritual, ecstatic, ethereal, abstract ways. We think that's how we experience God. But what God has done is that He's given us very concrete ways through the Scriptures to experience Him. He, he's given us the Scriptures. He's given us God's people. He's given us the prayers in the Scriptures to pray. He's given us things like baptism. And like the Lord's Supper, things that are tangibles. Now, these practices aren't going to save you. But they do make God's grace tangible to us. They are our wells. But do you see what happens after he drinks from these wells? You see the joy of the salvation, verses 1 and 2. You see how you experience that salvation continually by drawing on the wells. And then verses 4 to 6, uh, the, the psalmist, or the, not the psalmist, Isaiah begins to speak of what happens. What happens is, uh, in verse 4, 5, and 6, is that the, the Isaiah starts talking. God's people start talking. Verse, verse 4, you will say. You will say. <coughs> but doesn't it make sense that if you're filled with joy that you're going to say something? All joy always moves from being felt to being expressed. Always. Think about it. Think about it. If you're a UK fan, if you're not, you should be. Uh, and think about it. Being a UK fan, UK will win the title this year. What would you be like? Would it be possible for you to only feel that joy and not express it verbally? Wouldn't there be a noticeable outburst of enthusiasm? Wouldn't that joy translate into praising the cats and Coach Cow? To your friends and family. Well, let's go from UK, but what about if you got a promotion? Would it be possible not to tell anybody? What about if you had a great meal? A few months ago, we ate at a new restaurant and on a Saturday night, and I bet you I told 35 people at church the next day. <laughs> or what about if you had a baby? Or what about if you found your favorite Pokemon? Pokemon Go, that's your thing. Well, is it possible for you to experience this joy without saying something about it? Um, C.S. Lewis, in one of his more famous quotes, here's what he says about this, this dynamic. He says, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. End quote. 
See, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that if you really enjoy your salvation, if you really enjoy the God of your salvation, you can't help but to praise Him. But praise isn't just something that you do towards God. Praise is something that, that anyone who's in your vicinity overhears. Anyone who's within earshot of you when you're experiencing joy is going to know about it. That's why we praise that's why we praise the cats and our kids and Pokemon. It's because we bring other people into that joy. And when we bring other people into the joy that we are experiencing, you know what that's what I think that's called? I think that's called evangelism. Evangelism is simply when those outside the Christian faith experience the joy that Christians have in their salvation. See, when when an unbeliever witnesses you giving thanks to the Lord, verse 1, when the unbeliever hears you saying things like, God is my salvation, I trust in Him, and I'm not afraid, God is my strength and my song, verse 2, what happens is they're being evangelized. See, look at verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, you you see the line there, it says, Make known His deeds among the people, the peoples. Verse 5, it says, Let this be known in all the earth. He's talking about evangelism. This joy that he has in verses 1 through 3 now becomes joy that other people overhear. It's not just something that involves his relationship with God. It involves those around him, specifically the unbelievers around him, even to the end of the earth. And a lot of times um, within the church, uh, we we can view evangelism uh, as something that that's what pastors do. That's what missionaries do. They're the ones who do evangelism. They're the ones that we get to see for a week. We use a week of our vacation on a short-term mission trip. They're the ones that we fund. But that's not really something that we do. That's for professionals. But professionals, Lord willing, aren't the only ones who enjoy the God of their salvation. The nations are in view here. You can't deny that. And it's always been true in the scriptures. Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus called his disciples to go to all the nations. There is simply no way as a Christian to sidestep our responsibility to take the gospel to all people. But for some churches, their thrust, their evangelistic efforts are towards the nations. And I think that can be the easier route. It, it, it seems like the more glorious route, but I think it can be easier because it's disconnected from our day-to-day lives. We can compartmentalize it by saying that, that we can go somewhere for a week, we can do something with our money, but these short-term trips and giving our money, it's really good. I'm not knocking it. But when it's done as a way of compartmentalizing evangelism so we can check the box, so we don't have to risk our reputations and get awkward in our day-to-day lives, then we've missed it. But for many of us, when it comes to evangelism, we suffer, we suffer at least uh, one of the, uh, one if not both of these sicknesses. Uh, the, the, first, the, the first sickness I would call uh, being overly privatized. The second one is being overly publicized. Uh, being overly privatized... Uh, that, that, that kind of Christian says this. They say, I'm a Christian. Jesus did pay for my sins. He rose again from the grave. I want to grow in my faith. I want to take Jesus seriously. I love the Bible, but I'm not going to force other people to believe what I believe. God doesn't need me to save someone else anyways. He's the one who does it. This is what the overly privatized person says. They, they, they say, okay, on the face of it, until you, under, until you see what lies beneath them. See, you, you, what they do have right is that your faith is very personal. But it's never private. Never private. The, the other sickness that I think we, 
that we suffer from is being overly public. Maybe, maybe you've reduced the Christian faith to something that's only done in the public square. These kind of Christians, they're, they're usually very concerned about the culture at large. They're very concerned about people dying and going to hell. And they view it as their personal mission to make sure to convince others that they're wrong. And if they can get it right, then they can go to heaven too. Now, that's what evangelism looks like. That's tough. And that's exhausting. But the key to, 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 to this is not to get in the middle. It's not to, to, to be kind of, kind of public and, and personal at the same time. That's not it. But the key is to get off this whole spectrum altogether. The key is to get off the spectrum and to really land on the gospel. There's a gospel way of doing evangelism. But if you were to see this gospel way of evangelism, what would you see? What would you observe? What would it look like if we played a video of it? I think what we would see is that it would be very joyous. It would not be laden with guilt. I think it would be very Christ-centered. It would focus way more on the person of Jesus than going to heaven. I think at times it would be really abrasive because in the end, who really wants to be faced with the fact that they're a sinner? But I think other times it would be very tender and gentle. I think it'd be very loving. I think it'd be done with a sincere love for the hearer. But oftentimes when we hear principles like this, we don't know what that looks like in practice. So in closing, I really want to leave you with three practices uh, for gospel evangelism. Uh, The first one is to enjoy God through the means of grace. Enjoy God through the means of grace. Uh, We we can't get to verses 4 and 5 unless we do verse 3. It seems almost too obvious to mention here at the end, but it's so easily forgotten. Because oftentimes, especially those of us who are people kind of people, uh, we get really excited about evangelism. And it's real easy to replace enjoying God with being on mission for God. But friends, let me remind you of something. Remind myself of something. Evangelism will not last forever. It won't. There's going to come a day when Jesus returns. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. We will be experiencing the new heavens and the new earth and no more evangelism will need to be done. So what's going to happen? What are we going to be doing? We're going to be enjoying God. There will be no more need for wells because he's going to be with us. The Holy One of Israel is going to be in our midst. Verse 6. So evangelism isn't the point of your life, Christian. Enjoying God is the point of your life. Second thing, uh, gospel principle for evangelism is to pray for people by name. Pray for people by name. Um, when Jesus gathered his disciples, he chose a really diverse uh, socioeconomic crowd. He had, he had white-collar people, he had a tax collector, but then he had some blue-collar people, some fishermen. So they really connected with Jesus when he said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That sounds kind of weird. <laughs> Are you going to catch it? Does Jesus have some, some kind of secret fetish uh, for, for, for kidnapping people? I don't think that's what it is. Um, I think what he means by catching men is, is, is that these fishermen would now be not be persuading uh, fish to come into the boat, but they're, they're going to be persuade, persuading men, women, and children into the kingdom of God. Now, I, I, the thing about fishing here, I, I don't do it uh, at all because it requires you to go outside and. Uh, <laughs> 
But I do know this. One only catches fish when the ball is in the water. Fish don't just jump into your boat. Fish just don't jump into the cooler. Fish only jump in when you're targeting them. So what's the best way to target people in evangelism? Is pray for them. Pray for them. Outside of enjoying God for yourself, there's nothing more important when it comes to evangelism than prayer. See, when we pray for people by name, we can expect God to act. We can expect Him to help us love that person selflessly. We can expect Him to give us words to say when the time comes. We can expect Him to convert our friends with whom, for whom we pray. Our salvation is totally the work of God. And God loves it when we ask Him to work in the hearts of those we love. Pray for God. Last thing, have a meal. Have a meal. You may come to this point and say, "Why well, did it tell me what to do?" You know, I'm just, uh, I'm just enjoying God. Uh, I'm practicing the means of grace. Um, I'm praying for people by name. Sounds really good, but what? Well, give me a practice, Marshall. Have a meal. Don't worry about saying the right thing. Uh, people don't worry about what to say when UK fans don't worry about what to say when UK wins a game. Parents don't think about what to say when their children are born. You don't think about what to say when you have a great meal. You just get bonkers. And when you're enjoying God and you're praying for people by name, you have the freedom to enjoy God in front of those around the dinner table. I said this lots of times, but uh, Jesus was in the Gospels, was either going to a meal, he was at a meal, or he was leaving a meal. Jesus did kingdom work around the table. And I think that's where it happens for us. It happens when we eat meals with folks. The dinner table is the chosen arena for God to do his business with his people. Friends, this is the advent of joy. And Jesus, uh, he came and he absorbed the anger of God so that you might be comforted by God. And you will spend all your days, Christian, going back again and again to the wells of salvation. And you will say among the peoples, and among your neighbors, and among your co-workers, and among your family members, this is the God of my salvation. Will you enjoy him with me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Not only instructs, but it gives us power uh, for daily living. Well, I pray uh, that we would see afresh that you are the God of our salvation, or that we are meant to enjoy you. And tell other people about it. They might overhear our joy in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.